Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Kevin Maloney. He is the author of Cult of Loretta and the forthcoming short story collection, Horse Girl Fever. His new book is The Red-Headed Pilgrim, which is published by our friends at $2 Radio. Kevin, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me, Jason. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. So, Kevin, this book is a front runner for me for the best book of 2023. If it were out this year, as we are sitting here recording in September, it might be the best book of 2022. Um, oh, I kept having you. to I thank you for writing it. I kept having to get out of bed when I was reading at night and go to my living room because so much that I was afraid I was going to wake my wife up. Um, but my first question for you, Kevin, before we move into the book is how did the redheaded pilgrim land at $2 radio? Yeah, well, I, I first met Eric, uh, the publisher, Eric open up at, at two at uh, AWP. And I'd been a huge fan of $2 Radio. Um, Scott McClanahan's Crapaletcha in particular was like one of my favorite books ever. Yeah. And so they were on my radar. And when I talked to Eric, we got along really well. And I think it was after that AWP that he read my novella, Cult of Loretta. And he just had messaged me that he really liked it. So I, I knew that he at least read, liked my writing style. So mm-hmm. once I had a pretty decent manuscript and got to a point of starting to send things out, they were like at the top of my list. And when it came time to send it out, I, I sent it to $2 radio and just to their slush pile. But then I'm kind of messaged to them like, Hey, you know, I know we had talked before, you know, I know maybe you like my first book. I'm just letting you know, this is out there. And they got back to me right away. I think just to be like, Oh, okay. Yeah. We're interested, you know? And, um, but yeah, for me, they're a dream publisher. You know, I, I love, I haven't been to their bookstore yet in Columbus, but I'm, I'm excited mm-hmm. to check that out. And I just, I think to me, like anything $2 radio puts out is a book worth reading. And that's not something every publisher could say, you know, I think they just turn each book into a work of art. And um, I love kind of what they represent is all the things that like, I want to be associated with, which is like keeping it small and indie while still having a big reach and, uh, you know, uh, consistency among the authors that every book is, every book is incredible. So. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And um, listeners, Eric and Scott McClanahan have both been on this show in the past. So uh, look those up if you are so inclined. Um, Let's move on now, Kevin. This book is marketed as a novel, uh, but much of it seems to be autobiographical. Uh, Where is the line between fact and fiction in this book? Is it fiction uh, or is this like a million little pieces adjacent scenario where you market it as fiction just to cover legal issues? Um, You know, I think a lot of the things I write are somewhere in that gray area between fiction and reality. And I kind of like occupying that space and not having to pin it down. So it's, it's definitely a novel. It's definitely a work of fiction. But there are, you know, huge storylines that are at least, you know, in terms of the arc of the story and the, and the character are very close to my life. So when I'm writing, I love kind of dipping into a period of my life, revisiting it. But then, you know, in little places being like, well, what if something happened a little different and just exploring that. And uh, I think, too, um, you know, 
I, I like to make my main character the butt of most of the jokes, you know, hopefully the protagonist looks like a fool at the end of it. So I, I try to make um, the protagonist in this book who has the same name as me, which is like, in, it, you know, increases the confusion, but I like to make him do, be a little crazier, do things a little stupider, just push him a little farther. And I think that's fun for me to kind of revisit the past, but kind of reinvent it as I go. So I would say it, it you know, a lot of it adheres really closely to life, but you know, anyone who knows my life will read parts and be like, that never happened. And, you know, it, it, so it's, it's a mix. And I like, I like the ambiguity uh, between those, those two worlds. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Kevin. Um, much of your novel, The Red-Headed Pilgrim, deals with the fear of crossing over into routine or adulthood, uh, or routine adulthood. What is it about the routine of a nine-to-five career that is so scary and or repulsive to our protagonist? I mean, I think that part's very much rooted in my life. I grew up in the suburbs of Portland in um, Beaverton, Oregon. It's a huge suburb. And I think just what I saw, you know, my I grew up very middle class. And what I saw around me was, I don't know, everyone in my hometown just had this vague sense that we had to get out of there and that the lives that people on us, around us were leaving were kind of... Um, unaware i think this may be a very middle class phenomenon just this idea of like wanting to get out of your hometown and go see the world so i think there's a fear of getting stuck a fear of living the same lives your parents lived um you know i i my dad got up and went to work every day and came home in the evenings and it just something about that you know like i wanted to live a really different kind of life life with a lot of adventure and so i think that's what informs that fear in the protagonist of the red-headed pilgrim um, that he's just, he's almost like naively running away from these things. And hopefully the story of the book though, is, is not about embracing those things in the end, but maybe having a different understanding of, you know, having to pay your bills and just survive in this world. And, um, so hopefully the, the arc does show some growth for the protagonist, even though he's kind of two steps behind the reader, hopefully at every moment, you know, like in terms of figuring out how to survive in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And Kevin, what do you do for a living now besides writing books? I mean, yeah, I'm a I'm a web developer. And so I've been I was at the same company for 13 years. And for the last two years, basically, since the pandemic, I've I'm self-employed. I have my own company, but it's doing the same kind of work. So I do I build websites and I work from from home. And it's kind of a, in a weird way. It's a really great job to be for being a writer, I think, because I do a lot of coding and so I'm in the left side of my brain all day at work and it doesn't exhaust the creative part of me. So I love I love to be able to like get done with coding, go for a walk in the woods and then come back and jump into writing some fiction. Um, and, you know, this is, I think it's, you know, I've had this, I got that job when I was in my early thirties and, you know, for the first 13 years of that I was in an office every day. So that's kind of where the book starts in a way. It's inspired by like reporting to a desk job, being in a cubicle for the first time in my life and sort of, um, you know, I, I was living my worst nightmare in a lot of ways, but then still trying to hold on to my life as an artist and have integrity while while I was doing those things. And now that I work from home, it's much different and it doesn't feel like I'm, you know, working for the man in the same way I'm working from my our spare bedroom. So. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you, Kevin. Um, 
back to your novel, much of this novel, at least in the first half or so, uh, is also concerned with the topic of virginity and sex. Uh, what is going on here? And is this preoccupation more concerned with the act of losing one's virginity or the person that one might lose one's virginity to? I mean, I think it, I think it's both. Uh, you know, I think the protagonist is very he's very naive and like, like any teenage boy, he, he wants to, you know, fall in love and meet somebody and lose his virginity. But I tried to create a character that's so preoccupied by like the fear of death and the meaning of life that it's almost like he doesn't have time for that. Or he doesn't have time to do the normal things one would do to, you know, go to a party and meet a woman there and, you know, hit it off and go have sex. And so he's, I try, you know, I'm trying to create this character who's, going for walks and pondering the meaning of life and forgets to live a normal life. And I think um, that's what I tried to create the tension in the book. And there, there's one scene where he actually goes to the library to research how to lose his virginity. And I thought that was like the ultimate irony of someone who's bookish and doesn't really know how to live a normal human life. Almost like he'd been dropped here like an alien that's just trying to figure it out as he goes. Because I think that's how I feel a lot of the time, but I tried to, that's one of those things I pushed to an extreme, just make him extra ridiculous and confused about going through the motions of meeting people and dating. So I think it's, it, and because, and it, because he's such a late bloomer, I think sex becomes this almost mystical thing he can't fully comprehend. It's no longer just about meeting someone. It's almost an unattainable quest like Don Quixote in a windmill or something. It's, it's, uh, it's, that's his quest is to lose his virginity, but it's also not because he's really trying to figure out what the meaning of life is. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Kevin. Um, how did Howl by Allen Ginsberg inspire this novel? Yeah, well, there's there's a, a recurring quote from Howl throughout that comes throughout the book about the starry dynamo and the machinery of night. And I just that I think both Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg, you know, the whole beat generation. Uh, you know, I was, I sort of fell in love with them at 17 and 18. And then as I grew up and, you know, started dating some really smart, intelligent women who had a different take on the sort of masculinity of the B generation, it made me rethink all those books I'd fallen in love with and, and saw how they were told from such a male perspective and that they were problematic. And so I wanted this narrator to be following the footsteps of kind of this Jack Kerouac quest uh, while having like, you know, the the personality of Napoleon Dynamite, but maybe have a broader perspective where that naivety shows up again and again, like, oh, that 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 lifestyle isn't actually for him, because hopefully this narrator um, isn't willing to just sleep with someone and ditch them the next day. He's kind of the opposite of that. So he can't live this very freewheeling life as much as he might idolize it. And I think that helped create this you know, tension between what he thinks is this sort of mystical literature and who he actually is, which is sort of naive and quick to fall in love. And, you know, the second he gets someone to date him, he's just head over heels. And um, so, yeah, I think, I think, uh, you know, that for Allen Ginsberg, uh, I think it's mostly just that that line really captures the B generation for me. But I think Kerouac was sort of the person I had in mind that I was writing against, you know, like what, what would On the Road look like as a comedy when you aware hopefully of the the problematic masculinity in that book 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Napoleon Dynamite through the lens of the beat generation. I'm going to use that here. <laughs> um, listeners, we are going to take a break here for a word from our sponsor. And then I will be right back with Kevin Maloney. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Kevin Maloney, author of The Red-Headed Pilgrim, which is published by our friends at $2 Radio. Kevin, can you tell us about Robitussin-induced spirit journeys and what happens during said spirit journeys? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of right at the, the, the front of the book. Um, I mean, I guess uh, I'm not uh, someone who's, you know, explored Robitussin a lot as a recreational drug, but uh, I did have an experience once um, when I was maybe 20 years old where I uh, I actually had bronchitis and I had a thing of Robitussin next to me and I probably took a little bit too much and felt some of the effects of that. And it just happened to be at a time when I was reading a lot of, um, I was I was actually reading a lot of Allen Ginsberg at the time. So I just remember like sitting there coughing a lot and then starting to be like, oh, I probably drank too much of this Robitussin. I know it's not good for people. It's a terrible high, but uh, um so I did like in, in I had that one experience maybe of drinking a little bit too much and uh, hallucinating a little bit while reading poetry and in my novel I sort of blow that out of proportion and make it seem like it was a whole phase in this person's life like he had a robotessin phase where he was reading Walt Whitman and and having visions and all this and uh, I'm sure that does horrible things to your liver in real life so <laughs> but it was inspired by by a sort of accidental experience I had in my twenties. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I was once very sick and I went to a, a fish concert with my friend and I was so sick I had to sit in the car and probably also drink too much Robitussin. To try to <laughs> and the, probably the best environment to do that in, I guess. But Yeah, it's appropriate. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, there's a moment in your novel, Kevin, when your protagonist finds a bar to hang out in uh, and he gets drunk and eventually goes on a tirade that involves a lot of vomit. Um, the crux of this tirade is that Sufjan Stevens is a mouth breather and that Pearl Jam is the greatest band of all time. Uh, can you talk about this moment? Tell us what is going on, but more broadly, tell us about your protagonists or your uh, feelings about Sufjan Stevens versus Pearl Jam. Um, well, personally, I love Sufjan Stevens. I think he's amazing. Uh, I think that the character in that scene, you know, he's, he like me is a young Gen X probably, but right on that cusp. And so the character at that point, um, he has accidentally gotten his partner pregnant. Uh, they have a young child and then they're going through a divorce. So this is his, he's, he's kind of in hell. And, but what he's doing at this moment 
you know, uh, when you go through, when you have a young kid and go through a divorce and I had this experience, suddenly you get half of your single life back, you know, Where, whereas your life before might be all about watching Dora the Explorer and Blue's Clues. Suddenly you're going out three nights a week or whatever. And, and so this, the character at that moment is revisiting going into a bar, meeting a bunch of young people, but everyone's maybe seven or eight years younger than him. And there's a little bit of a generation gap there. So, and that scene, the character who, you know, is he's, he's flying his grunge flag and sort of protesting this, this new uh, wave of indie music that he doesn't quite understand. And, um, you know, I think I had that experience a little bit in real life. And it was, of course, I then I fell in love with all those indie bands. I love Sufjan Stevens and Bonnie Bear and all those people. But, you know, I, I was born and raised on grunge. And I think I leaned into that a little bit as a novel, making the character like ride or die for, you know, Pearl Jam and Red Hot Chili Peppers and Nirvana. And I just really wanted him to, to hold on to that kind of old school way of thinking. And I think in part because, you know, this is this is a novel where there's almost no technology. There's no cell phones. There's no social media. It's 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 like right before all of that really took over our lives. So I think I think the 90s grunge really captures, the, you know, the young Gen Xers were the last generation to really have that experience. So I just leaned into that. And and in that scene, yeah, I think he's also just, it's uh, the, a section of the book where the character starts drinking too much. And that was kind of his grand entrance into that is like throwing up in a bar and just starting this new dark phase of his life after he's going through this divorce. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you. I don't think we're ever going to get the rest of those 50 States albums from uh, Sufjan, but you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, sure. as a side note, uh, as we sit here in September, 2022 pitchfork.com just released a list of the 250 best albums of the nineties, which they've done probably 20 times in the past, but this time they have lived through this ranked ahead of Nevermind, which I'm assuming they did just to uh, start conversations, but yeah. Uh, uh. Yeah, uh, disagree. That's all I'll say. <laughs> um, well, let's now talk about English, specifically uh, earning a degree in English, a diploma that you write is only marginally more useful than no diploma at all. Um, is this a fact? I have my own opinions, but I want to hear yours first. I mean, I think the reality is probably that it's the exact opposite. I think maybe the, an English degree is maybe in this world we live in where everything's about marketing and social media, probably being English savvy is the best degree to have. And, um, you know, so I, yeah, I think the reality is the opposite, but the scene for that character is that, um, you know, he's he's gotten an English degree because he secretly wants to be a novelist, but knows he can't make a living that way. And so what he's facing is like, okay, what am I gonna do with it in my life now? Am I gonna teach or am I gonna work in advertising? And this character in his late 20s, the idea of working in advertising is, you know, selling his soul to the devil. It's the opposite of who he wants to be. So for him, it's just like he sees his life suddenly. He, he naively goes back to school as an adult and suddenly uh, finds himself pigeonholed with only one real career option going into teaching that is maybe not what he wanted to do in the first place, but he wasn't thinking that far ahead. He was just using college to, to be an artist, basically. And suddenly at graduation, he realizes as the father of a young child, oh, okay, now I have to get a job. And But yeah, I think the truth is probably anyone with an English degree, and this is the, you know, I got an English degree and got a job as a web developer and have used those skills and, you know, all the time. And yeah, I think it's very valuable probably. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. So um, listeners, don't be scared away. If you're looking <laughs> at an English degree, I've found it to be very useful um, as I sit here 
running a bookstore, doing a book podcast. Um, well, let's now talk about Wanderlust. Your protagonist is all over the place, uh, Oregon, Montana, Maine, Vermont, etc. Um, and perhaps he wants to go on even more adventures uh, as we leave him at the end of this novel. Um, I've lived all over the place myself, the Carolinas, California, Arizona, Colorado, many more places. Um, I've lived in San Francisco twice, both times I was visiting with a round trip plane ticket and just never flew back uh, to the place that was previously my home. Uh, why do people, Kevin, do these types of things? Uh, what does this tell us about people when they live this sort of lifestyle? And is this type of wanderlust and moving around from place to place still possible for folks in this uh, Airbnb-induced economy with housing shortages everywhere you go? I mean, that's a great question. And um, I think, you know, I, I, I don't know to what extent it's generational, but I know that, you know, I, like as a, as a young Gen Xer, I was born in 76. And for me, it was like in the air, everybody had this, at least everybody who had an artistic temperament at all, or, you know, there was this sense of wanting to get away that somewhere else other than Beavers in Oregon inevitably be better. And, but I think that created this grass is always greener kind of effect where when you got to that next city in the back of your mind, you're like, once, once you've been there a year, you're like, okay, what's next after this? Because there's, there's a thrill in going somewhere new. And I think it's, I think it's maybe, you know, rooted in watching, you know, my, my dad is somebody who worked at the same company his whole life and then retired. And he unfortunately got cancer shortly after he retired. So you know, I, I think there's a sense if you put off uh, vacation and travel for later, you'll never get to have that experience. So maybe our generation wanted to, or my generation wanted to, you know, incorporate, like live a life of travel and adventure while we're young. And, but I think the flip side of that can be um, that you're never quite satisfied with where you are. There's, there's this sense if you, if you get stuck, I think you can get stuck in being a wanderer as much as you can get stuck in staying in the same place where you, where you no longer like settle into one place and discover the beauty of that. And I'm, I'm a big fan of Henry David Thoreau. And I think he's got some line about like, I have traveled much in Concord, Massachusetts, just because he was always out walking. And I think that's a different way of seeing the world that allows you to be in one place. And I don't know. I, I mean, I, I'm worried for the, the younger generation in terms of rents, you know, cause we, when I used to travel somewhere, rent, you could get a room in a, an apartment for, you know, 250 bucks. And so you could roll into a town, work 25 hours a week and pay the bills. And I just, I, at least in the big cities, I'm sure that's not possible. I don't know if there's, you know, some, some, some cities where that's still possible that I don't know are cool. Maybe all everybody's in, you know, I don't know, Cleveland right now developing this amazing artist scene. And I'm just too old to know where that's happening. And hopefully it exists in um, somewhere in America right now. Because um, I think that's like, that it's it's an important rite of passage. And it's a way that you can kind of still have the hero's quest in your own life by moving to a strange city where other young people are looking for the same thing. And I know Portland was that uh, in the you know early 2000s. This was where people came. And of course, now Portland's way too expensive for most young people to do that. So um, I think it's just giving yourself an initiation to, into adulthood. You know, I, when I was younger, I read a lot of Joseph Campbell, like the hero with a thousand faces, the journey, like seeing your own life as like a quest towards 
maturity and adulthood, but viewing it in an almost like mythic way. And I think that's what a lot of people are looking for. Move to a city, reject where you came from, start a band and see what happens. You know, I think it's a, maybe it's a very nineties rooted idea, but, um, and maybe with cell phones, like people nowadays don't feel like they have to travel as much because you can see the world that way. I just, to me, I think it's a sadder way to see the world. I think you get jarred into life when you actually get in a car or on a bus or a plane and go somewhere. And I, th I think it, it changes the way you see the world. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Um, and it's okay to say our generation. I think we're probably, <laughs> you're pretty close to it. Um, well, finally, Kevin, you alluded to this a bit earlier, but I want to ask you to expand. Uh, how did a failed marriage and struggles with being a parent change our protagonist in this novel? Or did it? I mean, I think it changes the protagonist fundamentally. And that that's kind of, you know, I think the, the novel's really divided into maybe the first half, the, 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 you know, the protagonist, it's establishing his naivety. He's going off on this kind of mythic quest that he's, you, you know, viewing in maybe like his own odyssey or something. And then once he actually accidentally gets his girlfriend pregnant, suddenly adulthood is no longer this thing he can postpone. And, and I think that's when the character has a huge wake up, but he doesn't wake up fast enough. So he's still kind of bringing all this naivety. Um, there's, there's a scene where, his uh his wife is giving birth in the other room and he's annoyed he's tries to write a, a stream of consciousness poem while she's giving birth about her giving birth and to me that really captures like how naive the character is that that he's trying to capture this in an artistic way while while his partner is you know actually giving birth to their child and i think the character learns his lessons they just come too late like the growing up is too delayed and he's not able to step in and be, uh, uh, you know, a, a grown up enough husband and father. But I think the heart, the will is there. The heart is there. It's just that he's, he's a very youthful, you know, 25 or whatnot. And so I think what I tried to show in the novel and, and, and I had this experience of having a kid really young and it, I had some, brought some of that same naivety, hopefully maybe not as bad as the narrator in this book, but, um, yeah, I think it just changes everything because suddenly your life's not about just you. Like all the selfishness goes out the window. And I think what the character finds is by dropping out of college and not pursuing a straight and narrow life, suddenly he doesn't know how to make money. And when you have a young child, you need money. So uh, all of a sudden uh, he's plunged into a very different kind of life where raising, you know, making money is fundamental. And all those things he rejected by becoming a wanderer suddenly become important again. And I think that's how it kind of comes full circle and how it probably comes full circle for a lot of people, you know, like all these things you reject when you're young and being an artist, once you, uh, once you have a child to take care of, you look at your, maybe if you lived a middle-class life, you look at your parents a little differently, like, oh, it wasn't just about, you know, it wasn't just about them. They were doing that for me to a large extent. And now it's your turn to do that. So yeah, I think that, I think that's the growth of the character. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. And thank you for writing this excellent novel, which will be one of the best of 2023. We will definitely be keeping it uh, in stock at Explore Booksellers in Aspen, Colorado. Listeners, I've been speaking with Kevin Maloney, author of The Redheaded Pilgrim, which is published by our friends at $2 Radio. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me.
Thank you, Jason. I really appreciate it. Once again, I would like to thank Kevin Maloney for joining me. Copies of The Red-Headed Pilgrim can be ordered www.explorebooksellers.com. I would also like to thank our sponsors, Libro FM Audiobooks and Quail Ridge Books. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Booking.